A Brief History of Tomorrow by Yuval Noah Harari Read by Derek Perkins 1. The New Human Agenda At the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up, stretching its limbs and rubbing its eyes. Remnants of some awful nightmare are still drifting across its mind. There was something with barbed wire and huge mushroom clouds. Oh, well, it was just a bad dream. Going to the bathroom, humanity washes its face, examines its wrinkles in the mirror, makes a cup of coffee, and opens the diary. Let's see what's on the agenda today. For thousands of years, the answer to this question remained unchanged. The same three problems preoccupied the people of twentieth-century China, of medieval India, and of ancient Egypt. Famine, plague, and war were always at the top of the list. For generation after generation, humans have prayed to every god, angel, and saint, and have invented countless tools, institutions, and social systems. But they continued to die in their millions from starvation, epidemics, and violence. Many thinkers and prophets concluded that famine, plague, and war must be an integral part of God's cosmic plan, or of our imperfect nature, and nothing short of the end of time would free us from them. Yet, at the dawn of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it, but in the last few decades we have managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war, and we usually succeed in doing it. True, there are still notable failures, but when faced with such failures, we no longer shrug our shoulders and say, Well, that's the way things work in our imperfect world, or God's will be done. Rather, when famine, plague, or war break out of our control, we feel that somebody must have screwed up. We set up a commission of inquiry and promise ourselves that next time we'll do better. And it actually works. Such calamities indeed happen less and less often. For the first time in history, more people die today from eating too much than from eating too little. More people die from old age than from infectious disease, and more people commit suicide than are killed by soldiers, terrorists, and criminals combined. In the early twenty-first century, the average human is far more likely to die from binging at McDonald's than from drought, Ebola, or an Al-Qaeda attack. Hence, even though presidents, CEOs, and generals still have their daily schedules full of economic crises and military conflicts, on the cosmic scale of history, humankind can lift its eyes up and start looking towards new horizons. If we are indeed bringing famine, plague, and war under control, what will replace them at the top of the human agenda? Like firefighters in a world without fire, so humankind in the twenty-first century needs to ask itself an unprecedented question. What are we going to do with ourselves? In a healthy, prosperous, and harmonious world, what will demand our attention and ingenuity? 
This question becomes doubly urgent, given the immense new powers that biotechnology and information technology are providing us with. What will we do with all that power? Before answering this question, we need to say a few more words about famine, plague, and war. The claim that we are bringing them under control may strike many as outrageous, extremely naive, or perhaps callous. What about the billions of people scraping a living on less than two dollars a day? What about the ongoing AIDS crisis in Africa, or the wars raging in Syria and Iraq? To address these concerns, let us take a closer look at the world of the early twenty-first century, before exploring the human agenda for the coming decades. The Biological Poverty Line Let's start with famine, which for thousands of years has been humanity's worst enemy. Until recently, most humans lived on the very edge of the biological poverty line, below which people succumb to malnutrition and hunger. A small mistake or a bit of bad luck could easily be a death sentence for an entire family or village. If heavy rains destroyed your wheat crop, or robbers carried off your goat herd, you and your loved ones may well have starved to death. Misfortune or stupidity on the collective level resulted in mass famines. When severe drought hit ancient Egypt or medieval India, it was not uncommon that five or ten percent of the population perished. Provisions became scarce, transport was too slow and expensive to import sufficient food, and governments were far too weak to save the day. Open any history book, and you are likely to come across horrific accounts of famished populations driven mad by hunger. In April 1694, a French official in the town of Beauvais described the impact of famine and of soaring food prices, saying that his entire district was now filled with an infinite number of poor souls, weak from hunger and wretchedness and dying from want, because, having no work or occupation, they lack the money to buy bread. Seeking to prolong their lives a little, and somewhat to appease their hunger, these poor folk eat such unclean things as cats and the flesh of horses flayed and cast onto dung heaps. Others consume the blood that flows when cows and oxen are slaughtered, and the offal that cooks throw into the streets. Other poor wretches eat nettles and weeds, or roots and herbs, which they boil in water. Similar scenes took place all over France. Bad weather had ruined the harvests throughout the kingdom in the previous two years, so that by the spring of 1694 the granaries were completely empty. The rich charged exorbitant prices for whatever food they managed to hoard, and the poor died in droves. About 2.8 million French, 15% of the population, starved to death between 1692 and 1694, while the Sun King, Louis XIV, was dallying with his mistresses in Versailles. The following year, 1695, famine struck Estonia, killing a fifth of the population. In 1696 it was the turn of Finland, where a quarter to a third of people died. Scotland suffered from severe famine between 1695 and 1698, some districts losing up to twenty percent of their inhabitants. Most readers probably know how it feels when you miss lunch, when you fast on some religious holiday, or when you live for a few days on vegetable shakes as part of a new wonder diet. 
But how does it feel when you haven't eaten for days on end, and you have no clue where to get the next morsel of food? Most people today have never experienced this excruciating torment. Our ancestors, alas, knew it only too well. When they cried to God, Deliver us from famine, this is what they had in mind. During the last hundred years, technological, economic, and political developments have created an increasingly robust safety net separating humankind from the biological poverty line. Mass famines still strike some areas from time to time, but they are exceptional, and they are almost always caused by human politics rather than by natural catastrophes. In most parts of the planet, even if a person has lost his job and all of his possessions, he is unlikely to die from hunger. Private insurance schemes, government agencies, and international NGOs may not rescue him from poverty, but they will provide him with enough daily calories to survive. On the collective level, the global trade network turns droughts and floods into business opportunities and makes it possible to overcome food shortages quickly and cheaply. Even when wars, earthquakes, or tsunamis devastate entire countries, international efforts usually succeed in preventing famine. Though hundreds of millions still go hungry almost every day, in most countries very few people actually starve to death. Poverty certainly causes many other health problems, and malnutrition shortens life expectancy even in the richest countries on earth. In France, for example, six million people, about ten percent of the population, suffer from nutritional insecurity. They wake up in the morning not knowing whether they will have anything to eat for lunch. They often go to sleep hungry, and the nutrition they do obtain is unbalanced and unhealthy. Lots of starch, sugar, and salt and not enough protein and vitamins. Yet nutritional insecurity isn't famine, and France of the early twenty-first century isn't France of 1694. Even in the worst slums around Beauvais or Paris, people don't die because they have not eaten for weeks on end. The same transformation has occurred in numerous other countries, most notably China. For millennia, Famine stalked every Chinese regime from the Yellow Emperor to the Red Communists. A few decades ago, China was a byword for food shortages. Tens of millions of Chinese starved to death during the disastrous Great Leap Forward, and experts routinely predicted that the problem would only get worse. In 1974, the first World Food Conference was convened in Rome, and delegates were treated to apocalyptic scenarios. They were told that there was no way for China to feed its billion people, and that the world's most populous country was heading towards catastrophe. In fact, it was heading towards the greatest economic miracle in history. Since 1974, hundreds of millions of Chinese have been lifted out of poverty, and though hundreds of millions more still suffer greatly from privation and malnutrition, for the first time in its recorded history, China is now free from famine. Indeed, in most countries today, overeating has become a far worse problem than famine. In the 18th century, Marie Antoinette allegedly advised the starving masses that if they ran out of bread, they should just eat cake instead. Today, the poor are following this advice to the letter. Whereas the rich residents of Beverly Hills eat lettuce salad and steamed tofu with quinoa, 
In the slums and ghettos, the poor gorge on Twinkie cakes, Cheetos, hamburgers, and pizza. In 2014, more than 2.1 billion people were overweight, compared to 850 million who suffered from malnutrition. Half of humankind is expected to be overweight by 2030. In 2010, famine and malnutrition combined killed about one million people, whereas obesity killed three million. Invisible Armadas After famine, humanity's second great enemy was plagues and infectious diseases. Bustling cities linked by a ceaseless stream of merchants, officials, and pilgrims were both the bedrock of human civilization and an ideal breeding ground for pathogens. People consequently lived their lives in ancient Athens or medieval Florence, knowing that they might fall ill and die next week, or that an epidemic might suddenly erupt and destroy their entire family in one swoop. The most famous such outbreak, the so-called Black Death, began in the 1330s, somewhere in East or Central Asia, when the flea-dwelling bacterium Yersinia pestis started infecting humans bitten by the fleas. From there, riding on an army of rats and fleas, the plague quickly spread all over Asia, Europe, and North Africa, taking less than twenty years to reach the shores of the Atlantic Ocean. Between seventy-five million and two hundred million people died, more than a quarter of the population of Eurasia. In England, four out of ten people died, and the population dropped from a pre-plague high of 3.7 million people to a post-plague low of 2.2 million. The city of Florence lost 50,000 of its 100,000 inhabitants. The authorities were completely helpless in the face of the calamity. Except for organizing mass prayers and processions, they had no idea how to stop the spread of the epidemic, let alone cure it. Until the modern era, humans blamed diseases on bad air, malicious demons, and angry gods, and did not suspect the existence of bacteria and viruses. People readily believed in angels and fairies, but they could not imagine that a tiny flea or a single drop of water might contain an entire armada of deadly predators. The Black Death was not a singular event, nor even the worst plague in history. More disastrous epidemics struck America, Australia, and the Pacific Islands following the arrival of the first Europeans. Unbeknown to the explorers and settlers, they brought with them new infectious diseases against which the natives had no immunity. Up to ninety percent of the local populations died as a result. On the 5th of March, 1520, a small Spanish flotilla left the island of Cuba on its way to Mexico. The ships carried nine hundred Spanish soldiers, along with horses, firearms, and a few African slaves. One of the slaves, Francisco de Eguilla, carried on his person a far deadlier cargo. Francisco didn't know it, but somewhere among his trillions of cells, a biological time-bomb was ticking—the smallpox virus. After Francisco landed in Mexico, the virus began to multiply exponentially within his body eventually bursting out all over his skin in a terrible rash. The feverish Francisco was taken to bed in the house of a Native American family in the town of Sempoalan. He infected the family members, who infected the neighbors. Within ten days, Sempoalan became a graveyard. 
refugees spread the disease from Zempoalan to the nearby towns. As town after town succumbed to the plague, new waves of terrified refugees carried the disease throughout Mexico and beyond. The Mayas in the Yucatan Peninsula believed that three evil gods, Ekpets, Uzancac, and Sojakac, were flying from village to village at night, infecting people with the disease. The Aztecs blamed it on the gods Tezcatlipoca and Chipe, or perhaps on the black magic of the white people. Priests and doctors were consulted. They advised prayers, cold baths, rubbing the body with bitumen, and smearing squashed black beetles on the sores. Nothing helped. Tens of thousands of corpses lay rotting in the streets, without anyone daring to approach and bury them. Entire families perished within a few days, and the authorities ordered that the houses were to be collapsed on top of the bodies. In some settlements, half the population died. In September 1520, the plague had reached the Valley of Mexico, and in October it entered the gates of the Aztec capital, Tenochtitlan, a magnificent metropolis of 250,000 people. Within two months, at least a third of the population perished, including the Aztec emperor, Cuitlahuac. Whereas in March 1520, when the Spanish fleet arrived, Mexico was home to 22 million people, by December only 14 million were still alive. Smallpox was only the first blow. While the new Spanish masters were busy enriching themselves and exploiting the natives, deadly waves of flu, measles, and other infectious diseases struck Mexico one after the other, until in 1580 its population was down to less than two million. Two centuries later, on the 18th of January 1778, the British explorer Captain James Cook reached Hawaii. The Hawaiian Islands were densely populated by half a million people, who lived in complete isolation from both Europe and America, and consequently had never been exposed to European and American diseases. Captain Cook and his men introduced the first flu, tuberculosis, and syphilis pathogens to Hawaii. Subsequent European visitors added typhoid and smallpox. By 1853, only 70,000 survivors remained in Hawaii. Epidemics continued to kill tens of millions of people well into the 20th century. In January 1918, soldiers in the trenches of northern France began dying in their thousands from a particularly virulent strain of flu, nicknamed the Spanish flu. The front line was the endpoint of the most efficient global supply network the world had hitherto seen. Men and munitions were pouring in from Britain, the USA, India, and Australia. Oil was sent from the Middle East, grain and beef from Argentina, rubber from Malaya, and copper from Congo. In exchange, they all got Spanish flu. Within a few months, about half a billion people, a third of the global population, came down with the virus. In India, it killed 5% of the population, 15 million people. On the island of Tahiti, 14% died. On Samoa, 20%. In the copper mines of the Congo, one out of five laborers perished. Altogether, the pandemic killed between 50 million and 100 million people in less than a year. The First World War killed 40 million from 1914 to 1918. 
Alongside such epidemical tsunamis that struck humankind every few decades, people also faced smaller but more regular waves of infectious diseases, which killed millions every year. Children who lacked immunity were particularly susceptible to them, hence they are often called childhood diseases. Until the early twentieth century, about a third of children died before reaching adulthood from a combination of malnutrition and disease. During the last century, humankind became ever more vulnerable to epidemics, due to a combination of growing populations and better transport. A modern metropolis, such as Tokyo or Kinshasa, offers pathogens far richer hunting grounds than medieval Florence or 1520 Tenochtitlan, and the global transport network is today even more efficient than in 1918. A Spanish virus can make its way to Congo or Tahiti in less than 24 hours. We should therefore have expected to live in an epidemiological hell, with one deadly plague after another. However, both the incidence and impact of epidemics have gone down dramatically in the last few decades. In particular, global child mortality is at an all-time low. Less than 5% of children die before reaching adulthood. In the developed world, the rate is less than 1%. This miracle is due to the unprecedented achievements of 20th century medicine, which has provided us with vaccinations, antibiotics, improved hygiene, and a much better medical infrastructure. For example, a global campaign of smallpox vaccination was so successful that in 1979 the World Health Organization declared that humanity had won and that smallpox had been completely eradicated. It was the first epidemic humans had ever managed to wipe off the face of the earth. In 1967, smallpox had still infected 15 million people and killed 2 million of them, but in 2014, not a single person was either infected or killed by smallpox. The victory has been so complete that today the WHO has stopped vaccinating humans against smallpox. Every few years we are alarmed by the outbreak of some potential new plague, such as SARS in 2002-03, bird flu in 2005, swine flu in 2009-10, and Ebola in 2014. Yet, thanks to efficient countermeasures, these incidents have so far resulted in a comparatively small number of victims. SARS, for example, initially raised fears of a new Black Death, but eventually ended with the death of less than 1,000 people worldwide. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa seemed at first to spiral out of control, and on the 26th of September 2014, the WHO described it as the most severe public health emergency seen in modern times. Nevertheless, by early 2015, the epidemic had been reined in, and in January 2016, the WHO declared it over. It infected 30,000 people, killing 11,000 of them, caused massive economic damage throughout West Africa, and sent shockwaves of anxiety across the world. But it did not spread beyond West Africa, and its death toll was nowhere near the scale of the Spanish flu or the Mexican smallpox epidemic. Even the tragedy of AIDS, seemingly the greatest medical failure of the last few decades, can be seen as a sign of progress. Since its first major outbreak in the early 1980s, more than 30 million people have died of AIDS, 
and tens of millions more have suffered debilitating physical and psychological damage. It was hard to understand and treat the new epidemic, because AIDS is a uniquely devious disease. Whereas a human infected with the smallpox virus dies within a few days, an HIV-positive patient may seem perfectly healthy for weeks and months, yet go on infecting others unknowingly. In addition, the HIV virus itself does not kill. Rather, it destroys the immune system, thereby exposing the patient to numerous other diseases. It is these secondary diseases that actually kill AIDS victims. Consequently, when AIDS began to spread, it was especially difficult to understand what was happening. When two patients were admitted to a New York hospital in 1981, one ostensibly dying from pneumonia and the other from cancer, it was not at all evident that both were in fact victims of the HIV virus, which may have infected them months or even years previously. However, despite these difficulties, after the medical community became aware of the mysterious new plague, it took scientists just two years to identify it, understand how the virus spreads, and suggest effective ways to slow down the epidemic. Within another ten years, new medicines turned AIDS from a death sentence into a chronic condition, at least for those wealthy enough to afford the treatment. Just think what would have happened if AIDS had erupted in 1581 rather than 1981. In all likelihood, nobody back then would have figured out what caused the epidemic, how it moved from person to person, or how it could be halted let alone cured. Under such conditions, AIDS might have killed a much larger proportion of the human race, equaling and perhaps even surpassing the Black Death. Despite the horrendous toll AIDS has taken, and despite the millions killed each year by long-established infectious diseases such as malaria, epidemics are a far smaller threat to human health today than in previous millennia. The vast majority of people die from non-infectious illnesses, such as cancer and heart disease, or simply from old age. Incidentally, cancer and heart disease are, of course, not new illnesses. They go back to antiquity. In previous eras, however, relatively few people lived long enough to die from them. Many fear that this is only a temporary victory, and that some unknown cousin of the Black Death is waiting just around the corner. No one can guarantee that plagues won't make a comeback, but there are good reasons to think that in the arms race between doctors and germs, doctors run faster. New infectious diseases appear mainly as a result of chance mutations in pathogen genomes. These mutations allow the pathogens to jump from animals to humans, to overcome the human immune system, or to resist medicines such as antibiotics. Today, such mutations probably occur and disseminate faster than in the past, due to human impact on the environment. Yet, in the race against medicine, pathogens ultimately depend on the blind hand of fortune. Doctors, in contrast, count on more than mere luck. Though science owes a huge debt to serendipity, doctors don't just throw different chemicals into test tubes, hoping to chance upon some new medicine. With each passing year, doctors accumulate more and better knowledge, which they use in order to design more effective medicines and treatments. Consequently, 
Though in 2050 we will undoubtedly face much more resilient germs, medicine in 2050 will likely be able to deal with them more efficiently than today. In 2015, doctors announced the discovery of a completely new type of antibiotic, taxobactin, to which bacteria have no resistance as yet. Some scholars believe taxobactin may prove to be a game-changer in the fight against highly resistant germs. Scientists are also developing revolutionary new treatments that work in radically different ways to any previous medicine. For example, some research labs are already home to nanorobots that may one day navigate through our bloodstream, identify illnesses, and kill pathogens and cancerous cells. Microorganisms may have four billion years of cumulative experience fighting organic enemies, but they have exactly zero experience fighting bionic predators, and would therefore find it doubly difficult to evolve effective defenses. So, while we cannot be certain that some new Ebola outbreak or an unknown flu strain won't sweep across the globe and kill millions, we will not regard it as an inevitable natural calamity. Rather, we will see it as an inexcusable human failure and demand the heads of those responsible. When in late summer 2014 it seemed, for a few terrifying weeks, that Ebola was gaining the upper hand over the global health authorities, investigative committees were hastily set up. An initial report published on the 18th of October 2014 criticized the World Health Organization for its unsatisfactory reaction to the outbreak blaming the epidemic on corruption and inefficiency in the WHO's African branch. Further criticism was leveled at the international community as a whole for not responding quickly and forcefully enough. Such criticism assumes that humankind has the knowledge and tools to prevent plagues, and if an epidemic nevertheless gets out of control, it is due to human incompetence rather than divine anger. So in the struggle against natural calamities such as AIDS and Ebola, the scales are tipping in humanity's favor. But what about the dangers inherent in human nature itself? Biotechnology enables us to defeat bacteria and viruses, but it simultaneously turns humans themselves into an unprecedented threat. The same tools that enable doctors to quickly identify and cure new illnesses may also enable armies and terrorists to engineer even more terrible diseases and doomsday pathogens. It is therefore likely that major epidemics will continue to endanger humankind in the future, only if humankind itself creates them in the service of some ruthless ideology. The era when humankind stood helpless before natural epidemics is probably over, but we may come to miss it. Breaking the Law of the Jungle The third piece of good news is that wars, too, are disappearing. Throughout history, most humans took war for granted, whereas peace was a temporary and precarious state. International relations were governed by the law of the jungle, according to which, even if two polities lived in peace, war always remained an option. For example, even though Germany and France were at peace in 1913, Everybody knew that they might be at each other's throats in 1914. Whenever politicians, generals, business people, and ordinary citizens made plans for the future, they always left room for war. 
From the Stone Age to the Age of Steam, and from the Arctic to the Sahara, every person on Earth knew that at any moment the neighbors might invade their territory, defeat their army, slaughter their people, and occupy their land. During the second half of the twentieth century, this law of the jungle has finally been broken, if not rescinded. In most areas, wars became rarer than ever. Whereas in ancient agricultural societies, human violence caused about fifteen percent of all deaths, during the twentieth century, violence caused only five percent of deaths, and in the early twenty-first century, it is responsible for about one percent of global mortality. In 2012, about 56 million people died throughout the world. 620,000 of them died due to human violence. War killed 120,000 people, and crime killed another 500,000. In contrast, 800,000 committed suicide, and 1.5 million died of diabetes. Sugar is now more dangerous than gunpowder. Even more importantly, a growing segment of humankind has come to see war as simply inconceivable. For the first time in history, when governments, corporations, and private individuals consider their immediate future, many of them don't think about war as a likely event. Nuclear weapons have turned war between superpowers into a mad act of collective suicide, and therefore forced the most powerful nations on Earth to find alternative and peaceful ways to resolve conflicts. Simultaneously, the global economy has been transformed from a material-based economy into a knowledge-based economy. Previously, the main sources of wealth were material assets, such as gold mines, wheat fields, and oil wells. Today, the main source of wealth is knowledge. And whereas you can conquer oil fields through war, you cannot acquire knowledge that way. Hence, as knowledge became the most important economic resource, the profitability of war declined, and wars became increasingly restricted to those parts of the world, such as the Middle East and Central Africa, where the economies are still old-fashioned, material-based economies. In 1998, it made sense for Rwanda to seize and loot the rich coltan mines of neighboring Congo, because this ore was in high demand for the manufacture of mobile phones and laptops and Congo held 80% of the world's coltan reserves. Rwanda earned $240 million annually from the looted coltan. For poor Rwanda, that was a lot of money. In contrast, it would have made no sense for China to invade California and seize Silicon Valley, for even if the Chinese could somehow prevail on the battlefield, there were no silicon mines to loot in Silicon Valley. Instead, the Chinese have earned billions of dollars from cooperating with high-tech giants such as Apple and Microsoft, buying their software and manufacturing their products. What Rwanda earned from an entire year of looting Congolese coltan, the Chinese earn in a single day of peaceful commerce. In consequence, the word peace has acquired a new meaning. Previous generations thought about peace as the temporary absence of war. Today we think about peace as the implausibility of war. When in 1913 people said that there was peace between France and Germany, they meant that there is no war going on at present between France and Germany, but who knows what next year will bring. When today we say that there is peace between France and Germany, 
we mean that it is inconceivable under any foreseeable circumstances that war might break out between them. Such peace prevails not only between France and Germany, but between most, though not all, countries. There is no scenario for a serious war breaking out next year between Germany and Poland, between Indonesia and the Philippines, or between Brazil and Uruguay. This new peace is not just a hippie fantasy. Power-hungry governments and greedy corporations also count on it. When Mercedes plans its sales strategy in Eastern Europe, it discounts the possibility that Germany might conquer Poland. A corporation importing cheap laborers from the Philippines is not worried that Indonesia might invade the Philippines next year. When the Brazilian government convenes to discuss next year's budget, it's unimaginable that the Brazilian defense minister will rise from his seat, bang his fist on the table, and shout, Just a minute! What if we want to invade and conquer Uruguay? You didn't take that into account. We have to put aside five billion dollars to finance this conquest. Of course, there are a few places where defense ministers still say such things, and there are regions where the new peace has failed to take root. I know this very well, because I live in one of these regions. But these are exceptions. There is no guarantee, of course, that the new peace will hold indefinitely. Just as nuclear weapons made the new peace possible in the first place, so future technological developments might set the stage for new kinds of war. In particular, cyber warfare may destabilize the world by giving even small countries and non-state actors the ability to fight superpowers effectively. When the USA fought Iraq in 2003, it brought havoc to Baghdad and Mosul, but not a single bomb was dropped on Los Angeles or Chicago. In the future, though, a country such as North Korea or Iran could use logic bombs to shut down the power in California, blow up refineries in Texas, and cause trains to collide in Michigan. Logic bombs are malicious software codes planted in peacetime and operated at a distance. It is highly likely that networks controlling vital infrastructure facilities in the USA and many other countries are already crammed with such codes. However, we should not confuse ability with motivation. Though cyber warfare introduces new means of destruction, it doesn't necessarily add new incentives to use them. Over the last seventy years, humankind has broken not only the law of the jungle, but also the Chekhov law. Anton Chekhov famously said that a gun appearing in the first act of a play will inevitably be fired in the third. Throughout history, if kings and emperors acquired some new weapon, sooner or later they were tempted to use it. Since 1945, however, humankind has learned to resist this temptation. The gun that appeared in the first act of the Cold War was never fired. By now we are accustomed to living in a world full of undropped bombs and unlaunched missiles, and have become experts in breaking both the law of the jungle and the Chekhov law. If these laws ever do catch up with us, it will be our own fault, not our inescapable destiny. What about terrorism, then? Even if central governments and powerful states have learned restraint, terrorists might have no such qualms about using new and destructive weapons. That is certainly a worrying possibility. 
However, terrorism is a strategy of weakness adopted by those who lack access to real power. At least in the past, terrorism worked by spreading fear rather than by causing significant material damage. Terrorists usually don't have the strength to defeat an army, occupy a country, or destroy entire cities. Whereas in 2010, obesity and related illnesses killed about three million people, terrorists killed a total of 7,697 people across the globe, most of them in developing countries. For the average American or European, Coca-Cola poses a far deadlier threat than Al-Qaeda. How, then, do terrorists manage to dominate the headlines and change the political situation throughout the world? By provoking their enemies to overreact. In essence, terrorism is a show. Terrorists stage a terrifying spectacle of 